welcome to Tales to Terrify. Good evening, children of the night. This week we will be pausing just south of Athens, Ohio, across the river, to take in Point Pleasant, West Virginia. We've got Sylvia Schultz this evening, so we'll not dwell here too terribly long. We'll stop at Harris Steakhouse for a bit of chow. Over dinner we'll talk about a French explorer bearing a lead plaque, declaring these lands property of King Louis XV, and I'll point out we're talking about this in English, so that hadn't really worked out. Also, we might talk to the locals about the Battle of Point Pleasant back in 1774, which they'll tell you is the first battle of the Revolutionary War, and pretty much all historians will just tell you that it wasn't. But more recently, four teenagers visiting the McClintic Wildlife Management Area, known locally as the TNT Area, which is also home to the U.S. Army's West Virginia Ordnance Superfund cleanup site, happened to witness none other than the Mothman, sparking off a year of Mothman sightings stopping after the tragic collapse of the Silver Bridge into the Ohio River. Later, it would be discovered that three days prior, five men digging a grave had seen the same strange creature. Once we're done with our dinner, let's take a stroll down the street to see the Mothman statue. It's been a few years since I've seen this metal beast, and the Tuendi Way Park with its great mural. On our way, let's hear from Sylvia Schultz, and afterwards, a bit of fiction. We'll have a longer show this week, so stay tuned. Hello, this is Sylvia Schultz, your host for Lights Out. Some of you might wonder, in odd moments, what it is that I do when I'm not out chasing ghosts, or hanging out in morgues, or sitting in haunted cemeteries. Well, I do like to go camping and I belong to a group called Zombie Squad. ZS is a disaster preparedness awareness group that does quite a lot of education in the community. They do blood drives, help build houses for Habitat for Humanity, and generally help folks plan for being prepared for disasters. And they do all this against the backdrop of the coming zombie apocalypse. After all, the ZS philosophy goes, if you're prepared for the zombie apocalypse, you're prepared for just about anything. But we also know how to have fun. Every year, some of us ZS folks brave the wilderness and go camping. We spend a lovely long weekend splashing in the swimming hole, affectionately called man bath, to distinguish it from snake bath, which is located farther downstream, cooking over a campfire, and drinking our weight in beer. There are classes covering topics like knife sharpening, wilderness first aid, CB radios, wild plant identification, making a working bow from PVC pipe, and making cheese in camp. The hillside is steep, so steep that most people string hammocks rather than pitching tents. It's so steep that you have to put your brats on the grill pointing north-south, because if you put them east-west, they all roll down to the edge of the fire pit. It's so steep that one end of the table has its legs buried four inches in the dirt, and one end has its legs stacked up on rocks. But it's important to have that table there, because that is where the projector is set up, 
and after dark, we fire up the generator and watch zombie movies until the wee hours. But sometimes you need a break from the carnage and gnashing zombie jaws on the screen. That's when you take your chair and carry it down to the campfire. Everyone's pretty much done cooking for the evening, although there may be one straggler stirring a recalcitrant pot of rice with a spork by the light of a headband flashlight. There's always someone to talk to down by the fire. Not everyone is watching the movie. There always seems to be a full moon at ZombieCon. We never plan it that way. That's just how it works out. So pull up a chair. We'll sit together in the moonlight. I'll throw another chunk of cedar on the fire and pass you a freshly baked loaf of bread. It just came out of the Dutch oven. Break yourself off a hunk. Watch your fingers. It's hot. And let's listen to the stories people are sharing around the campfire. As we go, lights out. But, uh, yeah, while I was working there, which I haven't been there for nearly a year now. Uh-huh. Uh, while I was working there, there was a lot of instances where I'd work really late. Uh-huh. And uh, I exited by a, uh, a door that was on a loading dock and all the power switches to turn off all the lights in the warehouse were way at the other end of the building. So I'd have to walk through there in the dark just by flashlight. And it seemed like it was always okay when the lights were on. And then as soon as the lights went off, everything like started creaking and moaning. It's a 120-year-old building. So, yeah. I mean, you got to expect some stuff, you know, to just make noise. Uh-huh. But uh, there was definitely presences there. Yeah. You would always feel like people right behind you. And uh, where my office was is right at the end of a pretty long hallway. And uh, I swear I always heard footsteps coming down the hallway to my office. Mm. Uh, and what my office actually used to be was uh, they had a big meat locker. Because I guess during Prohibition, whenever all the breweries had to start doing other stuff, mm-hmm. uh, they were they, they ran a slaughterhouse out of there. They were, you know, freezing and hanging meat and all that, all that stuff. So I was in the old, like, meat packer manager office. Uh-huh. It was down this hall, and there was this big open walk-in cooler next to it. It still had the big meat hooks hanging from it and everything. It was oh, really super wow. creepy. But, yeah, there was always, always a lot more activity at night than during the day, obviously, you know. Um, the latest I ever worked was probably 2 in the morning, and it got so freaky just sitting in my office, I had to leave. I left all the lights on. My boss yelled at me the next day. There's no way I'm walking across this whole warehouse with the lights off. Oh, Even man. with a flashlight, it's just too freaky. Because working in the haunted house industry, we have all these props everywhere, so there's zombies and monsters everywhere anyway, so walking oh, yeah. around there with a flashlight just scares the shit out of you anyway. <laughs> yup. But, uh, yeah, um... We were working in there, it was over a weekend, and we heard there's a uh, there's two elevators on besetting our office on each side. Mm-hmm. One was the regular elevator, one was the freight elevator. We heard all this screaming coming from the freight elevator, and it freaked us out. We didn't even want to go look, because we figured it was some crazy ghost stuff going on. Yeah. What had happened was a, uh, a guy who was working for AT&T was working on the roof, went to take the elevator down. The elevator had moved floors inexplicably while he was working and he fell like six stories into the sub-basement and broke several, several bones in his body. 
Oh, geez. We ended up, luckily, we were there. We called the, you know, emergency services. They came and got him out. He lived. Um, but it was the exact same elevator shaft that one of the Lemp brothers committed suicide through. Oh, so as soon as it was all done, because the guy was telling us the story after, like, we went and saw him in the hospital and everything. Really nice guy. And he was like, I had that elevator not only left on that floor that I was working on, but I turned the power key off and made sure that it wouldn't go anywhere while I was working because of safety protocol. Yeah. And when he went to a step back on the elevator, it wasn't there. And he just went. Oh, my so, gosh. So, yeah, we are immediately like, dun, dun, dun. <laughs> it had to have been the ghost of the Lemp Brothers. That did yeah. It. But, uh, yeah, it, I mean, there was always something like that going on. Some noise or, or you walk into a room, it was inexplicably freezing cold for some reason. Wow. Uh, all the video we ever took in there had tons of orbs in it. I mean, all over the place. <laughs> uh, it was a really super spooky place to work. I liked it a lot. <laughs> cool. Um, I used to work at the Lemp as well, many a minute ago. Okay. But it wasn't like that side of the Lemp. Mikey actually worked in the Lemp Brewery. I worked in the stables. Okay. And uh, one of the things that you don't really hear much of, there was a little girl that was actually trampled. Mm. She was like a distant relative's kid that was from the Lemp Mansion or whatever. Mm-hmm. And the stables aren't anywhere. It's, you know, pretty far away from the actual... Uh, brewery and manor and all that shit. Mm. But yeah, the little girl was actually getting in with the horses and was playing with them. Mm. And one of them, she had let out of the stable mm. and it trampled her and she died. Oh, no. Well, every once in a while they said that, you know, you would see stuff there. I never saw anything or heard anything, which uh, that's really odd for me. Mm-hmm. They see and hear almost everything. It's ridiculous. <laughs> um, but there was one night, I didn't see her or anything like that, but I was sitting there in the stairwell, and we just built this scene for the hard house. Mm-hmm. And I'm sitting there, and I had to go upstairs and kill the power to, you know, the whole place so we could see. Mm-hmm. So we had all the lights in the scene. They wanted to see what, what it looked without the overhead lights. Gotcha. And I'm sitting there, and I got upstairs, killed the power to the whole place, and I heard somebody come up the stairwell, and I was like, oh, hey, guys, you know, mm-hmm. who's up here with me? They're like, uh, nobody. I was like, oh, yeah, 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 quit fucking around, guys. Who's up here with me? They're like, dude, nobody's up there with you. I was like, all right, Joe. He's like, I'm down here, buddy. No. Dame. And uh, is Dave there? Me too, dude. Who the fuck's up here with me? <laughs> Lovely. I, I like laid in there. I didn't sleep through any of it. <laughs> but uh, 
there was like we ended up like going out for breakfast the next day at like seven o'clock in the morning and there was like a wedding crew that came in and they started setting shit up and they got in there about you know six thirty or whatever we rolled out of there came back and the lady was like oh yeah you guys are the guys from our house like yeah how's it going she's like yeah, you know, I heard you guys, you know, playing around this morning. We're like, what do you mean? She's like, you know, all the, like, you know, the noise and the effects and the sounds and, like, all that stuff going. I was like, dude, <laughs> the house is shut down. What are you talking about? She's like, no, you guys were in there. You, you guys are totally there. We heard you. And I was like, no. We have the keys. We weren't in there. There's no way that's in there. There's no way you can get in there. Uh, if, you, if you wanted to get into it, you'd have to, like, jump off the catwalk which is a good 12, 15 foot drop off into the warehouse <laughs> there's nobody in there mm. she just looked at us frowned and went on her merry little way <laughs> she swore we were lying to her <laughs> that wasn't us don't know what you're lady but it was not us mm. Uh-huh. 
And then finally, like, you know, end of the week or so, I mean, she let it go out for a couple of days or something like that. And end of the week, she just got a little curious and she put it in one of the locks and it turned and <laughs> locked all the doors. Every single one? Wow. Every, every single one in the house. <laughs> Shelf or whatever, 
and everything on that shelf came crashing down. Now this is this is all you know coincidental. Yeah. And I mean, my mom just came running in, and she looks at me. She's like, "What did you do?" I was like, "Nothing." <laughs> I'm sitting on. I'm still sitting at the top of the stairs, and we both like go into my bedroom, and we look, and we couldn't figure out where this crash came from, where this noise came from. So I look around, and all of a sudden we realized, oh. The painting fell off the wall. Oh, damn, it hit the shelf. And we started looking, and all the breakables were just fine. <laughs> Except for the porcelain doll of myself. The whole head was smashed. <laughs> Which, again, I mean, that's... And we, we still never figured out how it, like, came off the wall or anything. Like, the nail was still there. <laughs> The uh, the hook that it was hanging from was still on the back of the painting. We never like there was no physical evidence why this thing had fallen off the shelf. Oh jeez. So I mean that was it was whatever. <laughs> but it was still very eerie. The only thing that broke was the actual porcelain doll, and it was the head that was just shattered. I was like, oh, that's shitty. <laughs> anyway. I had lived in the house for 17 years. Mm-hmm. My parents had lived there for 27 years. And they had a divorce and things were going wrong. Mm. And it was really weird because we were moving out and I, went, I started going down towards the basement. And I mean, all the TVs were out. All the furniture was out. All mm. that stuff. And it was all just knick-knacky stuff. Mm-hmm. And I had gone down into the basement and I turned out the bathroom light in the basement. And I turned around. And it was the second time I'd seen a full figure apparition in the house. Mm. And it was, it was like, have you ever seen like TV static? Like yeah. the white snow? Yeah. Mm-hmm. It looked like a full figure of that. Like the TV static just walked right across the doorway. Oh. And I mean, and it wasn't like, it wasn't like a shadow though. That was what it was so weird. It looked like it was TV static. It just walked right across the doorway and I mean I just talking about it right now I'm still getting goosebumps I <laughs> tell that story and here's the really bad thing too mm-hmm. whenever I talk about this stuff is whenever it starts happening again in my life oh like, no uh, damn it I shouldn't have been talking about it oh I'm sorry <laughs> no, no, it's, I'm used to it I've dealt with this you know a lot in my life mm. um, but yeah we moved we uh, like everything that we knew was anchored into that house. Mm. But that house and also across the street was a Methodist church. Okay. Well, the Methodist church, it moved locations, but the building was still there. Well, nobody in town wanted to buy, you know, the old Methodist church except for some guy outside of town looked at it as an opportunity. Mm -hmm. He said, oh, well, that's great. It's an old abandoned church. I could buy that and turn that into a funeral home. Oh. Okay, cool. And remember whenever I told you when things started picking up and I started noticing more things? Yeah. Was in my early teens? Uh-huh. Yeah, Robert D. Brown Funeral Home moved in in 1993. <laughs> I was 13 whenever they moved in. Mm. So whether, you know, these apparitions were just walking right across the street. Sure. Don't know. <laughs> but uh, there were times where uh, Bob, 
babysit because he'd have, he'd get a call and he'd have to go out on a call. Mm-hmm. Well, I would sit there and his son, who at that time was about three or four years old, he would talk about, hey, it's that man. <laughs> now you know how your mom felt. <laughs> well, and the thing was, too, like the funeral home itself had uh, a basement, and the basement was where the family lived. Oh, they lived okay. inside the funeral home. Okay. And I mostly watched him over the funeral home. Mm-hmm. And all of a sudden, like, he would talk about, you know, oh, there's that man. And I'm like, all right, yeah, cool, you know, my mom did that stuff. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and I mean, it always had, like, a, an interesting chill to it. But uh, one of the beautiful chilling situations was this was about the time that uh, they started having baby monitors becoming popular. Oh, yeah. Okay. And, you know, they'd say, all right, you know, we got to go out on a call. You know, if you could sit here and watch him, you know, he's in bed. He went to bed at 9 o'clock. Yeah, just, you know, make sure that he's in bed. You can listen to baby monitor. Mm-hmm. Okay, cool. There's monitors set up all over the place. Okay. And you would hear footsteps upstairs, and you'd hear somebody whistling. <laughs> and it would carry from one monitor to the next monitor in the next room, and the next monitor in the next room. And, I mean, you could hear it. It was crazy because, like, you could hold the monitors, and you could tell that it was coming in in stereo. <laughs> and then all of a sudden, it would just like fade out from the one from the the far one to the one that's coming up, and you could just hear this this person whistling <sighs> all throughout the whole upstairs. And you're like, shit, just got real. <laughs> oh my gosh! <laughs> um, my favorite story from that house was my mom. Um, I ended up moving my uh, my bed from upstairs, and I moved it down into the basement. Mm-hmm. Notice the trend. But yeah, um, she said that, you know, she had just got home and she called it down to the basement, you know, see if I wanted breakfast. Mm-hmm. And she heard, she went into the bathroom and, you know, did whatever. And then she heard me come up the stairs into the kitchen, over the refrigerator, mm-hmm. and then go up onto the second floor and walk up into what, what what used to be my old bedroom. Okay. And she went up there and she called out to me and she opened up the bedroom door and I wasn't there. And she was trying <laughs> to figure out where I was. Yeah. Uh, yeah, actually, I wasn't home. Oh, I was guessing you were in your basement bedroom, but you weren't even home at all. I wasn't home at all. Wow. And actually fucked over at my girlfriend's house that night. Oh my gosh. <laughs> my van was there, but I wasn't home. Okay. Oh, she picked wow. me up in her Mustang and we went back and crashed over her place. Her parents were out of town. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know how that situation works. Oh, anyway. yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, those stories, kids. But yeah, I wasn't even home. <laughs> Man. <laughs> um, in that same house, I had friends that, I mean, I can't really, you know, vouch for this or verify this one, but okay. I had friends that said that, you know, they would come up and they'd ring the doorbell and they'd wait and they'd see me come up to the door mm-hmm. and somebody would come up to the door and then walk away. Mm-hmm. Oh, oh, okay. Uh, now, 
again, totally incidental, you know, nothing that big or whatever, but, uh, okay. so, one night, this was whenever the Blair Witch Project came out. Okay, yeah. Okay? Mm-hmm. And, God, I, I know Jefferson County PD must have hated me for this one. <laughs> but, I'm sitting there, and we had, you know, a big bay window right behind me. And we had this couch that was in front of the big bay window. Mm-hmm. Terrible placement, totally not feng shui. Anyway, <laughs> um, uh, but yeah, we had the big screen TV right in front of the couch. And I'm sitting there, I'm watching the TV, and I'm watching it, it's getting all intense, and you know, oh, they lost the map, oh, this is crazy, <laughs> this movie is, you know, whatever. Mm-hmm. And I already knew that it was fake. Yeah. I mean, everybody knew the whole story, whatever. I finally got around to watching it. Gotcha. And... We're getting close to the end, and all of a sudden, like, I get this glowing reflection in the TV. Mm. And it's coming from the deck right behind me, which mm. is, you got a big bay window that faces the deck. Mm-hmm. And whatever this bright white light was was on the deck, and then you just hear this loud explosion, like this loud pop. Oh. <laughs> okay. And I mean... You would think it was like a big firework or something like that, but I mean, it was loud. I played with fireworks. I know what a firework sounds like. This was explosively loud. Mm. And a big, bright, white light, like hot white light, mm. right behind me. <laughs> and I about shit my pants. I <laughs> yeah. went out that front door. I had the, uh, the cordless phone. I called 911. I was like, yeah, I know. I need somebody to help me get back into the house. <laughs> Something just blew up on my back deck. <laughs> so, of course, the cop comes out there, and we start investigating, and there's no burn marks, no nothing. <sighs> We're looking all over this, you know, wooded deck, asphalt wood. It was on the deck. Something bright white just exploded <laughs> right behind me, and nothing was there. There was no sign of any physical damage, destruction, nothing. And we're looking like all around the woods right behind me, all that stuff. He's like, well, maybe it came from the highway. Nope. <laughs> Highway's about another mile on the other side of the woods there, buddy. Oh, crazy. <laughs> so, and that was that house. Well, I ended up, I, I was hit with an ultimatum of, you know, my mom's selling the house, she's getting remarried, you know, time to move on. Mm-hmm. Okay. Either move in with my mom or find a place on my own. I'm 18. Sure, whatever. So I end up moving to U-City. Mm-hmm. And that's when shit got really weird because I had one roommate that she swore there was a man that looked almost like me mm. that would follow me around. Oh, that's weird. I'm like, what? She's like, yeah, like... There's a guy that I always see going to going to your bedroom, but it, it's not you. <laughs> it, it has facial hair, <laughs> and he, he follows you. Like you'll leave, and then a couple minutes later, he'll leave. That is so bizarre. <laughs> and I'm like, all right, what drugs are you on? She's like, no, it's weird because like you have a goatee and he has a mustache. <laughs> but he follows you, and he's wearing, like, older clothes, like, old-time clothes. Uh, like, really? That is nutty. <laughs> so, and I mean, there were times, like, in that apartment, we'd just be, like, 
you know, she would have her bedroom at the far end and my bedroom would be at the other right. Mm-hmm. And you'd hear something like go into the bathroom and close the door. Mm-hmm. Every once in a while you'd just be like sitting in bed and the shower would turn on. <laughs> I ended up moving in with a friend of mine. Mm-hmm. And a friend of mine worked IT. And while I was working IT, like, there were times that he'd have to go out of town and I'd have to watch this dog. Mm-hmm. And it, this is the first time I had, like, since my youth that I'd ever, you know, had to experience a dog mm-hmm. living with one. Right. And his dog hated being around me. The dog was a black lab. Okay. And, I mean, it was a real nice, sweet dog. And one night... Like, his name was uh, Riley. Mm-hmm. And one night, I'm laying in bed, and Dave, he's gone. And Riley is just in the hallway, just barking. Mm. And Riley never barked. I mean, he would just kind of, like, growl a little bit, like, uh, or something like that. <laughs> this dog was full-on, gnashing teeth, barking loudly. Jeez. And, like, he's backing up in the hallway, like, past my door. And I'm like, what the hell is wrong with Riley? <laughs> And I mean, he is just like full on, just, just barking mm. madly. And I'm just like, holy shit. So, and this is about the time that I started getting into firearms. And I had, I like pulled my gun. Mm-hmm. And I'm ready. I'm just like, what's up, boy? What's going on? And I got a flashlight and I start sweeping the house. And something had gotten in between me and Riley in the hallway. Mm. And he lost his shit. <laughs> he went from full-on barking and going crazy to whimpering and tucking tail. Oh. <laughs> and I'm, I'm like, whoa. I'm doing the house clear. I'm checking the house. And it, like, there was a room at the end of the hallway. Mm-hmm. And he was about, like, Riley was about to that room, backing up into the room just barking and my bedroom was on the left side Dave's bedroom was up and to the right there was a bathroom and I just checked Dave's room and I was getting ready to check the bathroom and that's whenever Riley tucked tail and started whimpering and went back into the room and I'm like <laughs> what in the hell just happened <laughs> wow and that was that was the only time I had experienced anything like that Except for there was uh, one time, uh, Dave had gotten into some financial problems, mm. and he put a house up on the market, and I'm sitting there one night, like, one of the doors opened. Mm. Like, the back patio door, the screen, the sliding door had opened. Mm. There's a bar that's in the way, which, you know, a good thief knows how to break into a house and get past the bar. Yeah. Well, the bar was missing, mm. and the door was open, but nobody would come in. Huh. So, I mean, I could chalk that up to someone trying to break in. Yeah. About a night after that, I missed some shit right out of, like, Michael Myers' Halloween. <laughs> Riley loses his shit again. Okay. This is the second time I'd ever seen a dog, like, just growling, barking, going crazy. Mm-hmm. And I go outside and I look, uh, I, I got into the bedroom that he was, he was like facing a window and he was barking and growling at something. And I looked outside and there was nothing. Mm. 
And then I told him to shut up, you know, everything will be okay. <laughs> went back to the bedroom, went back to the Facebooks, you know, whatever. Yeah. And he's going crazy. <sighs> and about that time, I come back in to yell at him again, and there's somebody in the yard. Like, in the yard. <laughs> maybe 10 feet away from the house, staring up at him. <laughs> and then I ended up pointing a flashlight on this person, and it was like they acknowledged me, but, you know, they didn't, like, really look at me or anything like that. I'm like, yeah, I get going. Mm-hmm. They didn't move. <laughs> so I turned the flashlight off and go out front to confront this person, and I had a gun on me at the time. Yeah. And they weren't there. Uh. And then Riley's still going crazy. I'm huh. like, okay. So then I'm getting a little bit worried. And I get back in the house, lock the doors, start dialing 911 about, hey, yeah, I've got somebody that's, you know, in my yard, and they're, like, really freaking out the dog. You know, I'm trying to make this call, and I look over, Riley's going crazy, and the guy is right at the window. Holy crap. <laughs> Whoa. I mean, he is like, and we're on the second floor. He's at the window looking in at the dog. Oh, shit. Oh, my God. And Riley is like barking his ass off. (laughs) And I pulled a gun and I started pointing it. And whenever I pulled a flashlight, the guy was gone. (laughs) Oh, man. I can't verify that that was like, you know, any type of apparition or, you know, whatever. But it was definitely an eerie situation that, you know, hey, I've got a flashlight and I got this gun. And as soon as I pull up the flashlight, the figure, the guy is like instantly gone, taken off. Mm. Not a trace of him in the yard or anything. I like ran up on the window, started looking out, and he's not there. I'm like, mm. did he drop down and run around the house? I mean,. I've ever seen bushes moving, something. Yeah. Nope. But I mean, it's the second floor, and the guy was right there at the window. I'm like, what the f- <laughs> You are making Ow. chills go down my spine right now. <laughs> like, he would have had to have done, like, he would have had to have, like, run up into the yard, done a pull-up onto the window with the screen still there. Yeah. And looked in at Riley. <laughs> Sure. Yeah. Uh, 
18 flashlight checks. Okay. Hold on. Okay. Is anybody there? No, no one. Not so far. I just had to be really weird if there was somebody. I think I actually would prefer that there wouldn't be anybody there. <laughs> I'd like it to be, you know, me hearing shit as always. <laughs> that would be more appropriate because if I actually do see somebody, that's when I was like, all right. So that's going to be um, a big letdown. <laughs> we, we might we might be hearing some gunshots here soon. <laughs> As we were sitting here talking, this might be the first time I've ever like had it while I'm like talking on the phone, especially the first time. (laughs) I've just been like, you know, sitting here talking on the phone and heard something over my. Oh crap! What? I just find something. Oh man, this is dreadful. What? I found a spider on the wall. Flat on the wall, oh, spider. Man. Now, oh, <laughs> holy shit! He's got some good size things on him. Oof. We're gonna leave him alone. Let him die in peace. But yeah, that was just really weird though. Because okay, so I guess I'd have to explain the layout of the house. Okay. Um, the layout is: I was in the kitchen, which faces the back door, mm-hmm. and then there's the front door, which is on the other side of the kitchen. Okay. There's a den right next to that. There's a dining room, and then there's a living room. Okay. So everything, my, I was facing the back door, and something was walking behind me in the house. <laughs> in the hallway. <laughs> I hope you've enjoyed sitting around the campfire and chatting with me and Mike and Drew. The ZS folks are a great bunch of people. Please visit Zombie Squad at zombiehunters.org, where their motto is... We make dead things deader. 
Please join me next time when we'll travel back in time to ancient Egypt. We'll learn to walk like an Egyptian the next time we go. Lights out. Thank you, Sylvia Schultz. Tonight's fiction comes to us from Joseph S. Pulver. His blog is going to give you a better view of who he is than I can share. That blog is thisyellowmadness.blogspot.com, which, of course, will be in the show notes. From the very title of the blog, you can see his love for Robert Chambers' The King in Yellow, and by extension, True Detective's wonderful and regular dipping of toes into that strange place. Joseph S. Pulver Sr. started his publishing career in the early 1990s with a number of short stories published in various American small press magazines, foremost among them Robert M. Price's Crypt of Cthulhu. His tales cover subjects ranging from Robert Wine's The Cabinet of Dr. Caligari to H.P. Lovecraft's Cthulhu Mythos and Robert W. Chambers' King in Yellow. Pulver's professional debut came with the publication of his Lovecraftian novel Nightmare's Disciple. In addition to various American small press magazines, Pulver's work has been featured in numerous anthologies in the USA, UK, France, and Japan. Some of these anthologies include Black Wings, New Tales of Lovecraftian Horror, The Tindaloo's Mythos, Spawn of the Green Abyss, The Book of Ebon, Lynn Carter's Anton Zarnak, Supernatural Sleuth, and Rehearsals for Oblivion. Nearly two dozen short works of his have been translated into French and Japanese. I'll draw your attention to his novel, The Orphan Palace. I don't know who did the cover for that book, but it is wonderful. His list of published stories is marathon. Tonight's story comes from Sin and Ashes. And the title, The Last Few Nights in a Life of Frost. Dim and slightly damp. A cramped basement, flea bag of a room, and something less than a flop house. It's the best cast-offs blacklisted by fate can find when they're on the run, even from the swords of punishment within. St. put down his cigarette, opens the letter he's been staring at for over an hour. In it, a key. A note says, go here. There is a map. No return address. Looks at the postmark. It's very old. Dead letter old. A decade before he was born old. Who, and how in the hell, doesn't pack much. His gun, a few changes of clothes, and the picture. Envelope left behind, dropped in the middle of the floor for the maid. Forgets to tear something up or slam the door. Takes a bus downtown and another to a trucking hub out near the airport. In a truck stop diner, he steals a car. Twenty miles later, in a prime inn motel parking lot, he abandons it and steals another. Drives two hours west and abandons that one as well. Takes a taxi to the airport in this other town. In the long-term parking lot, he steals the third. Four and a half hours later, as the sky darkens, he leaves the car in a supermarket parking lot. Walks to the Prime Inn Motel. Checks in. Number 17. Gun drawn. Safety off. He enters the room. From Illinois to Arkansas to Georgia to Nebraska to Arizona, there are 532 Prime Inn budget motels. Exactly 25 rooms in every one. 1,330 in all. Seen one, you've seen all. Budget meaning cheap. Mattress. Budget meaning cheap. TV. Sometimes they work okay. Budget meaning cheap. Everything else. About half are sort of clean about half the time, if you're lucky. But everyone is cheap. 22.50 a night or an hour, if that's all that's required. 
Most of the horrors that use the rooms are in and out in less than 60 minutes. Dope deals take a little more time because there's more money to count. The room is empty. Sets a small, cheap suitcase on the floor and looks around. Nothing. Checks the bathroom. Nothing. Lifts the receiver from the cradle. Has dial tone. Sets in back down. Begins waiting. Edgy. He wonders what or who he's waiting for. Three cigarettes and five pulls off the pint of whiskey later, he turns on the TV. The strawberry blonde smiles and says, You made it. That's good. We weren't sure you would come. ST picks up his gun. No need for that. There won't be anyone tapping on your door. While you wait, you might like to read what we've left for you. It's in the drawer. She stops smiling. I'll talk to you again soon. The TV shuts itself off. He knows the strawberry blonde. Did a job for her a million years ago. Funny, she doesn't seem to have aged. Not too much. ST remembers the job. Dirty and bloody. And she didn't pay him. Didn't fuck him either, though she had promised. Whispered it so sweetly, her fingers on the back of his hand, hot enough to melt steel. Her hips pressing against his, hot enough to forge steel. Opens the drawer slowly. An old and worn leather diary, his initials embossed on the cover. But he never kept or owned a diary. No need to. He remembered everything. Takes it out of the drawer. Looks at the back. Nothing. Push the button to release the clasp. Hello. That's the whole of page one. Sets it down and lights a cigarette. Sets his gun down beside him on the bed. Turns it to the second page. He grew up to be a cold fuck. Looked at it and killed it. Or couldn't be bothered and just walked away. But when he was young, he had a home. Nothing fancy. Simple and clean. His parents died when he was nine. Fire. Local paper called it a real inferno. Maybe arson. They sent him to a home for foundlings. Zims. Bet you remember Zims. A dark place, even by day. Cold and hard. The matrons colder than death and meaner than the pent-up sadistic schoolmasters at Ichabod Crane who couldn't figure out safe ways to fuck those little just-about-to-blossom schoolgirls you sat beside. You remember those nights, don't you? Bet you well recall Mr. Stark, too. The shiny black suit, those unsightly black horn-rimmed glasses, that weapon growl voice and its unending cold questions. Remember, or do you pretend it's water under the bridge? His expression doesn't change, but his eyes go cold. If there were any living thing within twenty feet of him at that moment, it would be dead from the killing frost. He seemed strange, walked where it walked, dealt with it, killed it. And this is strange, even to him. And when he finds her and the them she mentioned, he's going to kill them too. Her last. She's going to wish she fucked him. She's going to beg. Little Miss Barbara and her honey alto promises will be on her knees begging to fuck him or anything else he wants and... ST turns to the next page. Back with us now? Good. Curious? If you are, we'll get to that. For now, follow the directions. When you get there, we'll speak again. He reads the directions. The rest of the diary is blank. He turns on the TV again. No Barbara. Nothing but snow and white noise on every channel. Decides to catch a few Z's before heading out. Three hours later, washes his face, checks the TV, still nothing. Walks out, leaving the door open and the diary in the cheap waste can. Steals another car. Six hours west, under clouds that announce summer's over. In and out of gray open wounds, those trying not to die call cities. He 
He's been drunk in a few, spread a rain of death sleep over dreary orchards that didn't have enough fire for suicide and others. Stops for a meal of eggs and toast and whiskey and to change cars three times. Finds the next motel. The direction stated the door would be unlocked and the room paid for. Just go in. Further instructions would be inside the room. ST steps into the dark room, gun leveled, very ready. Flicks the light switch. There's a woman, young by her look, tucked under the covers, lying there like she's laid out in a casket in a funeral parlor. He softly closes the door, stares, nothing in the room moves. No rise and fall of her chest, she's not breathing. Checks the bathroom, empty, doesn't touch the phone. He didn't expect a warm welcome, but this is... You want games, Barb? You're going to get my best game. Standing over the woman, pulls back the covers, she's naked, a bullet hole in her chest. Her hands are folded over her chest, a diary is in her hands. On the nightstand beside the bed, a cigarette butt, his brand, and half a glass of whiskey. The imprint of blood-red lipstick, no ice. No smell of tobacco or red lipstick on the girl's lips. Carefully looks her over, Betty Page cropped black hair, natural. Black lipstick, black nails, and heavy black eye makeup. Vampire bat earrings and a ruby nose piercing. One nipple pierced. Arms and shoulders and neck, legs covered in ornate, expensive tats. Her sex is shaved. Jesus type. Would be, if she was alive. And one in the heart is his method. ST takes the book from her hands, covers her back up. Stares at his initials on the cover before releasing the clasp and opening it. Some hello, huh? Wanted you to feel at home. Is it working? Ah, poor little boy. No fucky-fucky for you unless you've acquired a taste for cold kisses and dead pussy. Maybe next time we'll find something that can stand upright before it lies down. So our wayward hell's angel is out on the road moving from yesterday to now in hot cars. Stopped for a quick meal and a pint, I wager. Perhaps we've worked our way up to fifths. Fist? Turn on the TV and we'll chat. Closes the book, sets it on the bed by the woman's feet, lights a smoke and turns on the TV. Barbara smiles through the exhaled whirls of the blue-gray cloud, wiggles the fingers of her raised hand in a hello, coughs, then frowns. Must you smoke those damn things? It took you long enough to get here. Are you getting old or have you just grown more wary? You are quite the piece of shit, aren't you? Alive or dead, you just can't seem to make it work. Fuck you, Barb. God, you're still pissed. I didn't spread my legs for you. Well, maybe if you're a good boy this time, I've got something good to give you. She shivers as if excited, sexually. I'm looking forward to it. Care to? Not yet, sweetie. Read the instructions. Follow them. Ta-ta. And the TV goes white noise and snow again. Trying to bring depth and focus closer, he sits and smokes in the darkened room with a dead girl lying beside him before returning to the diary. You and Pamela. Vale Cemetery. Almost half drunk on cheap wine. Annie Green Springs piss, right? By old Doc Johnson's headstone. Moonlight and skunk cabbage and her shirt and her bra were mostly off. Mr. Stark found your love poems to her in your English notebook. Read them aloud, critiqued them for the whole class. They laughed, bruised you with their damning crisscross of hushed gossip and scathing looks in the halls after. He sent a note to the headmistress of Zim's and she took over your instruction. 
Did you find Miss Gross' bed of torture inspiring? Really doesn't matter. Just keep following the directions. So he does. This time, he's to take the body with him and go to a graveyard he knows all too well and inter the girl. X marks the spot, sweetie. 65 miles per hour on the interstate in a stolen car. Dead woman in the trunk. Arrives by moonlight. Parks in the wood at the south end. Carries the body to the grave. Dr. Byrne, Mayor Johnson. Stone hasn't moved an inch in a quarter century. There's a shell resting on the headstone. He digs. Finds another diary covered in sheer white cloth and plastic. Takes the book. Leaves the girl. When he's done tossing the dirt back in the hole, he sits and opens the diary. The night you ran away, you killed Miss Gross, strangled her while you were thrusting, filling her hard loneliness with your fear. She didn't make a sound, but her eyes screamed. Took the money she had in her purse and got on a bus. You fell in with demons, stole, tried to stay away from the insensitivity and menace you saw in the buzzing neon. Looked in windows to find things, took them, ran with the blood drinkers until you saw her. Waif, little monster girl, blood dreams on her fingers, dead, but it had yet to lie down. Sweet poison you just had to touch, to taste. She talked to you, frail words of darkness, cool and tender, wrote your name in her book of sand and make-believe fate, etched it beside the ivy scrawl of her haunted tar-paper black runes, you gave her your blood and fell for her, fell into her hunger, kissed the bleeding compass tattooed over her heart, killed them so they wouldn't kill her, and what she wanted you to kill for her you did. Then you killed her, gave her body to the ghouls, but wouldn't dine with them. All night long you sat there as they begged and cajoled. Come and try, each one whispered. Tell the truth, you thought about it. Can you remember her name? Do you remember the timber of her last breath? Everything beautiful dies. Was she holding your hand tenderly at the last? Remember, daredevil, once you step over the line, there's no retreat from oblivion. St. closed the book, left, drove, zoomed east. The gray, open grave city shrieked like things in need of emergency rooms. He didn't turn on the car radio to hear the calls for help and he was afraid Barbara's voice would come out of it. He wasn't playing Barbara's malignant game anymore. Her madness was her madness. He lived it up, almost, sometimes, and watched it go down, all the way down. Old wounds that hadn't healed, and she was ripping them open, pouring in restless and salt, and old lies dressed in old promises. This time around, they weren't seamless, and he wasn't a dry idiot locked in a cage, hoping for the softest touch. A small town in the coarse muzzle of rough weather robs a closed up at seven liquor store, smashes more than he takes, rides across the state line with his whiskey, finds a place to let it rock him to sleep. Half a bottle in, on the bed, gently fingering old dreams, shivers when the nightmares enter his trip back to broken hearts. Wolves and claws, sinister teeth tear the curves and whispers. The pretty girls, dark and tender, lost, lonely, velvet and wine in his arms, lays him down softly, comfort, and they go away, and he's left with the blood, drowning in shadows, his needs await, arms of velvet and wine, he needs another, 
drives, a hellhound fast train hunting until he finds one. Then, pale, cold, no place to go, sick of the play and its plague of no futures. He has a bottle, a room away from the stage with no rain, shows her his heart. She takes his hand, he sells his soul, wonder again. The skin on her arm is a thousand miles long. Sweet talk whispered, desire, flame, sweet poison. He lets her rob him blind. From eye and delta she takes faith and spirit, leaves only flesh and bone. He takes all her pain, for a moment at last, tired hearts. One expires. In the dark, minutes later, no magic in the air, he wonders if it was all just a dream. Her. He's already forgotten her name, the girl stashed in the trunk. Back. The road to them. Back. In the city by dead river of muddy water and industrial waste. Back. Through the old iron gates. Home as close as he ever had. No god, no saints in this hiding place. Under the lawns of departure, the nightshade labyrinth of requiems where angels and other things that have collapsed are laid to rest. Stands before the dead breed, offers his offering of summer's set, watches as the gravekeepers hold it tightly. No woe in their eyes, no hint of bereavement on their hyena faces. Watches as they, unable to conquer the lunacy of their fever, tear at the throat, at the small pale beast, split the skull, froth, feast. The tang of crimson joy fills the chamber, and he leaves. Time to end this. Drives. A ford, through the night, could be cactus or a chicken joint or sleeping factories or canyons or hobo camps hunkered down against the frost hidden in the darkness, steals an Impala, this end of the city to that side and beyond, a V8 Chevy Silverado, over small dark hills and out of the thunder-thick weather, another town with no name, steals a Dodge, sees no fools, no kids or chins or shipwrecks or clocks or razzmatazz or outlaws or signals or healers. No song or voices come to his ears. Moving quickly under the unarmed silence of the stars, no dharma tunes come to him. Past the forest of night cluttered with the open dreams of things that feed on weakness and tears. Over bridges past unworthy and mythical and function and diversion and take it or leave it. Past irritating misfortunes now scrambled off to bed. Revved up, he fails to notice current tactics playing cat and mouse with her first dance. Stops in Tillman, next to a pawn shop and a check-cashing mom and pop. Both closed, eats. Eggs and toast, no meat. Gets her room and opens the book for the second time. Always sick and tired, always running from ruin. Why, it's everywhere. And you can never stay away. It touches you. There is no passage away. You cannot hide in trees or behind mountains. No normal street with lawns and children's bikes and Sunday barbecues by the pool will hold you. Midnight is everywhere. The time has come for you to grow up and come in from the cold. ST turns on the TV. Hello, Barbara says. He lights a smoke. She doesn't say, must you, but her smile dims a bit. News has come to me. You've given them another one. He nods. You know I have the cure. The only thing I've ever wanted for you is to share in it. The rest was a mistake. You were young and I didn't understand. His lips part. 
says nothing, takes a drag off the smoke instead. This is crazy. Finally, we agree, he says. She smiles, hopeful. Reunion? he asks. Barbara nods. The day after tomorrow, there will be a moon. A moon is fitting, don't you think? A quiet, dry tone. There was a moon that night, one at the start, one when it comes to an end. And there is a village of ghosts in the desert. On the far end of town is a weathered brothel where hard men shivered in the arms of well-fed women who could strip those who claim no sin of far more than cash. It, though, closed these many years, has a well-stocked bar. I'll be waiting for you there. I'll be the heartbreaker with the bottle of Jameson. A half-laugh, but something different, almost sad in his eyes. From her, a full smile. He remembers how she could light up the world. She sees it in his eyes, hopes. Will you sleep tonight? She asks. I'll try. Good night, then. St. turns off the TV lies on the bed and stares at the ceiling. He remembers kind of a drag playing, slow dancing with her, Barbara's hips pressed to his, her lips by his ears, hears her sing softly, steals his last car, heads into the setting sun, colors he can't recall paint the sky, his road becomes no road, moon rides high, clouds herded to its right, a lone cactus stands sentinel at the crest of the hill, Perhaps once some place to be, perhaps once unique, now forgotten by the big sky and all that sits under it, her ghost town. Dead. Not even a ghost. The desert has reclaimed all, even the simple scarring markers on Boot Hill. The brothel, out of captivating and Saturday night salvation. Parts of the sagging roof are wind-worn, torn, and ready to cave. The front door looks like it wants to lie down in the dust and sleep. All the windows are dusty, but still intact. The merest hints of what might have been red and yellow paint yet to exit the boards of the outer walls look like stains. Parks in front of the doors, stands there and smokes, takes off his shoulder holster and tosses it and his gun on the front seat, worn boot heels on the steps. Perhaps, uncertain of her legs, she does not stand when he comes in. They said you had filled out well. She opens with instead of hello. You have, she thinks. You look the same. Good. Thanks in her eyes and on her lips. He crosses the room. She finds her legs, stands, can't decide if she should hug him or not. Pours two drinks, hands him one. He takes it. They sip. She's dreamed of this meeting a hundred times. He's thought about this meeting a hundred times. Her red shoes two steps from him his black boots two steps from her, worlds apart, closer now. She sets down her glass, and does he. She steps forward, almost touching. Demon, murderer, he feels her heat, her desire, almost touching, mouths open, almost words, almost. He steps back, breathes, takes out a small, razor-sharp knife. She steps back from its loud clarity. Cuts along the outer shore of his face, fingers dig under the skin of his brow and pull the flesh down, reveals his true face to her, her eyes wide, lips parted, his true face, not a mirror of hers as it has not partaken of flesh. 
The son in his inmost depths desires his mother, flesh of his flesh, to have and to hold. You brought me into this world. This madness of fever and frost that lies between us, I will take you. The flash of a smile on her face, she steps forward, out and by consuming you. Frozen, the backbone of her conception shattered. Will enter the world you wished for me. A hiss of disappointment and disbelief from her as his blade, a barrage of fire and lightning in her bewilderment slices deep and across her throat. Shock as she goes limp and is transported, exhausted, about to be null and void. Tears. He holds her as she bleeds out, kisses her as her last breath flees her body, licks her warm, dark blood from a fingertip. Somehow she has slipped out of her red shoes. On that night so many years ago, she was about to offer him her breast. He remembers how the moon shone on it, carries her outside into the moonlight, sits in the middle of the street. Theata-like, he cradles her in his arms and lap, strokes her cheek with the blade, sighs, pops the buttons of her blouse off with his knife. The cold fever is hard in him, slices rather than unhooks her bra, looks at the nipple rose on the field of pale flesh, carves his first piece of meat from the breast he never got to kiss, chews, swallows, baptizing blood on his face. Too many roads, Barbara. The only way I know is alone. If I had known then, but only sight may move backward. From his pocket, he removes a very old picture of her, a picture taken the night they slowly danced. Smiles a regretful smile. A picture of lived here before the hours slumped and were undone. Tears it up, it falls like snow. Bridge crossed, he eats one of her eyes, a corpse eye. Remembers it being blue. Perhaps I'll see what you gazed on. Strokes her hair, the frost of his long standing no melts completely. His old life trails off. There are new colors in the air. They tease him with possibilities. His eyes alter, now red burning things, they gaze at the troubled face of the moon. It wishes it had eyelids, it's seen more than its share of unending, wretched damned dance itself into decay and despair unraveling until it's little better than a moth-eaten corpse and not nearly enough magic. It would it pay, almost anything, to turn off the turmoil and brutality, if only for a night or two. And that was... The Last Few Nights in a Life of Frost by Joseph S. Pulver, as read to us by me. My link will be in the show notes. Otherwise, that will be our evening. Join us again next week for another edition of Tales to Terrify. Tales to Terrify.